right, take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25. And as you do, we are finishing our series on the parables of Jesus. And we've entitled this series, The Tales of the Kingdom. And uh, today we'll be looking at uh, the second of three parables that Jesus told um, in Matthew 25 related to the second coming of Christ. So let's pray one more time and then we'll stand for the reading of God's word. Father, thank you for the time of worship. May it have prepared our hearts and now Holy Spirit empower and enable the preaching of the word. Remove any distraction from our mind and hearts and give us ears to hear and hearts to receive so that we may see clearly your truth and respond appropriately with joy and gratitude. And we love you and thank you again for your faithfulness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The title of the message today is Kingdom Work Until Christ Returns and Accounts Are Settled. Matthew 25 and verse 14. Scripture says, For it will be like a man, that is the return of Christ, the second coming, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property, To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he, all, and he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we think about the various stages of life, let me ask a question to begin the message. What do you do in preparation for what is ahead? 
I asked a similar question last week, but in this question, I, I want you to think in particular like stages of life. For example, if you're a young person in the room and you're thinking about your future as you graduate from high school and you enter into young adulthood, you explore career options. You might go to a career expo and you, or a job fair and you may just listen and see things to see what might interest you. You might job shadow someone in a field that interests you or uh, maybe as you think about college, you visit colleges and you look at programs that colleges re, uh, offer and the requirements for the degree that may be in the field of your interest. And then when you think on the other spectrum of life, looking toward retirement, you work, you save, you invest, you insure because you're preparing for a time when you may not be able to work and you may not, you will have physical limitations. And you might open a Roth IRA or you might get involved in the stock market. But I think all of us, as we think about these two spectrums, the point is readiness, no matter what we're talking about. It, it, it means that we just don't sit around and wait for life to happen, but we actually think ahead and we make preparations. Again, as I said last week, um, many of you have already begun making preparations for Christmas. Your de- trees are up, you're decorating, you're shopping, you prepare for the holiday. So it doesn't matter if it's the big things or the little things, preparation for the future is what applies. Well, I again use that as an illustration to take us to the text that we just read because this is about readiness and Christ's return. The theme of Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is in, in, in what has been called the Olivet Discourse. That is the final message that Jesus Christ preached in his earthly ministry was about being ready for his second coming. We are to be ready for Christ to return. And as Jesus here in Matthew 24 and 25 teaches, he he gives us in chapter 24 some general signs. Wars and rumors of war. There will be nation rising against nation. and, And every generation sees this increasingly. Evil will increase. Immorality will increase. Jesus explains all of this in chapter 24. All of the general signs given in in Matthew 24 are to simply illustrate the promise of His coming. He makes it abundantly clear in these chapters that He will return. And He will return personally to gather His people and bring His rule to the earth. He will also, if you read Matthew 24 and 25, He will return one day powerfully with glory. The trump will sound. The archangel will shout announcing His coming. The clouds will roll back like a scroll and every eye shall behold Him. The graves will empty and the Lord will appear in the clouds with the armies and the inhabitants of heaven. That is a promise of Scripture. He will appear to conquer, to judge, to make all things new, to rule and to reign forever and ever. And what a day that will be. But the question before us is this. Are we anticipating that day? And will you be ready when He comes? And so Matthew 25 gives us 
a series of parables. The first parable was that of the bridesmaids, which really emphasized the importance of being ready. But, but the essential question of Matthew 25 is, what does readiness look like? And in the parable of the bridesmaids, we saw that, that Jesus taught that we're to watch like members of a wedding party awaiting the return of the groom. And in here, in this parable, the parable of the talents, Jesus teaches that we are to work as laborers in his kingdom. And so we are to watch and we are to work. That's what we are be, to be doing as we await the day that Jesus returns. Should we be looking at signs of his return? Absolutely. But those signs should never eclipse the imperative of watching for his return and working until he returns. The bride's great, bridesmaids of the groom were vigilant, at least the ones that were ready. And the slaves or servants of the master we see here were to be diligent. And so the phrase that I want to put before us as we think about what it means to be working until Jesus comes is this, gospel opportunity. I just, if you're taking notes, just write that down. Gospel opportunity. I want you to be thinking about the opportunities that are given to you for the gospel and for the kingdom. And here's the key truth that Jesus communicates in this parable. Let us be found faithful and investing in God's kingdom when Christ returns. You need to note that. Let us be found faithful and investing in God's kingdom when Christ returns. Now, I realize that's kind of a broad statement, and we're going to unpack that. But in general, the Lord expects us to live faithfully and to invest in his eternal kingdom until Jesus returns. And there are three things in this parable about the master of the parable, who represents our Lord. Three things about our master that should encourage us to this end, to be faithful in investing in God's kingdom as we work for him and not waste the time before his return. The first thing we'll look at is that he entrusts his wealth. The second thing we'll look at is, is that he rewards the faithful. And then the last thing we'll consider is he condemns the wicked. Those three things should encourage us to work and to labor for the kingdom as we await the day that Jesus appears. So let's look at number one, he entrusts his wealth. Look at verse 14. In verse 14, we see in the parable the master's generous gifts. He entrusts his gifts to his servants. Verse 14, for it will be like, that is, the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus will be like a man who goes on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. I'm going away, but I'm leaving this for you to manage, to take care of, to be responsible for. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his ability, and then he went away. And so what I want you to notice there in just those verses uh, introducing the parable is the master's generous gifts. Notice that the man, the master, calls his servants or his slaves, calls them to himself, and then he entrusts them with his wealth. And to each of his servants, the master gives talents to use and invest. Now here's the question, what are talents? 
And immediately what we think is a talent show. That's immediately what we think. We think of something that we have, like an ability we have, in order to perform, right? That's what we think. We, 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 we think of, we, we think of something that we are to, to do. But actually talents, the talents are monetary units. Most likely a weight of precious metals like gold, silver, or copper. One talent, and that you, you just need to get that out of your mind, that talents, again, were not like gifts for a talent show or a performance. They were units of metal, gold, silver, or copper, and one talent equaled 6,000 denarii. Now, one denarii was a day's labor. So imagine how much money this is. In other words, the master's vast wealth is shared with his servants. A huge amount given for them to manage. And here's what Jesus wants his listeners, particularly his disciples, to consider. Talents are simply resources and opportunities given to believers in order to build his kingdom. Did you get that? Talents are resources and opportunities that are given to believers and to be used for his kingdom. And so the master in the parable gives talents or his wealth to be used and invested. And so Jesus is the master going on a journey. His servants are those who belong to him by grace through faith in salvation. Those that are his servants are those who have been saved by his grace. And I need you to listen carefully here. Again, talents are not unique abilities for a show or performance. They are resources and opportunities given to every professing believer to build his kingdom. J.C. Ryle writes this, Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Did you hear that? Anything. Anything whereby we may glorify God is a talent. Now, we all know that ultimately everything comes from God, right? Doesn't James chapter 1 verse 20, 17 say, Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning? And so we understand that everything ultimately is not ours, but it's ours to be used for the glory of God. And so here, I want you to think about this practically for just a moment. So, so think about this really practically. He has given you and me abilities. I mean, in addition to our salvation, in addition to forgiving me of my sins and adopting me into his family and clothing me in righteousness, he has given me, he has given me abilities. Some of those have come by the work of the Spirit and some of them are just natural abilities. Every one of you have those. So, so it, it could be abilities. What about time, wealth, interests, desires, knowledge, strength, emotions, relationships, a place in his church, and many blessings, a Bible on our laps, right? I mean, he's given all of this. He's given all of these things as means to glorify him. And the principle that you see in the text is this. And here's the principle about all that he's given us. Ready? Here it is. 
So, okay, so if we establish that God gives us abilities and resources and opportunities for his kingdom, all right? Here's the principle I want you to keep in mind. It's this. He gives different amounts to his servants according to ability. That's what the text says. The text says that he gave according to their ability. Isn't that what the, isn't that what that verse says in verse 15? One, he gave five talents, another two to another one to each in accordance with his ability. In other words, not everyone receives the same amounts. One five, one two, and another one. The master knows his servants. He knows their capacity. He knows their ability. He knows their uniqueness. He knows their design. And in a spiritual sense, God knows because he created us. And he saved us. Now what this does is, this tells us something. Everyone in Christ's kingdom, and everyone in the Lord's church, who are truly saved, we're all different. We're different in our ability. We're different in our giftedness. We're different in our resources. We are not all designed and we are not, uh, we are not all designed the same or wired the same. We're not all given the same amount or kinds of opportunities in life. And here's the point. That's okay. That's okay. Be content in your opportunities and be content in your limitations. We have limited abilities. We have limited opportunities. We have limited time. And so we need to get out of our head this overwhelming sense of like, wow, I've just got to be perfect. Be content. And I'll tell you another thing. Don't compare. The one with two didn't worry about the one with five. And the one with five didn't worry about the two. Instead, be content and don't compare and don't critique everyone different than you. You know why? Because here's the point of the kingdom. Every post in life is important. And all our labor matters, no matter how insignificant it may appear to us. Because it is all for our Lord and our Master. Your discipleship may be little children sitting in your in your care on a day-to-day basis. It may be navigating teenagers in order to direct them for life and a life for God. It might be leading a Bible school or teaching a Sunday school class or a Bible study or teaching a Sunday school class or it might be opportunities of preaching and teaching in other capacities. But you know what? We're not to get in a game of looking at one another and thinking, well, I wish I did that. I wish I had that. But instead, be faithful in where we are and what we have. That's an implication of this passage. And so 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another uh, to, as good stewards of God's varied grace. This is a stewardship. A stewardship in general that is given to believers and to the church. And we are to use this faithfully. Let me, let me drill this down just a little bit more. Hopefully this is helpful. I'll give you five areas. Okay, I'm not a list guy. I really not. I, in fact, I hate lists. I despise lists, right? Because it makes some people think they're perfect and it makes people who know they're not perfect feel overwhelmed, okay? So that's why I hate lists. And I'm usually the guy that feels overwhelmed and so I hate your lists, sorry. Here's five, here's five spheres, you ready? You have a soul. Keep watch over your soul. If you're worried about everybody else but you're not worried about your own holiness, you need to do some introspection. Watch over your soul. 
Fight your sin. Do that for the kingdom. Marriage and family. Whether you're married or whether you're not, whether you have children or whether you don't, we all have families. Some of us have marriages. Some of us have extended relationships. But here's the thing. Let me speak to marriage and family. Are you leading and loving in your home? There's your first mission field right there. Your faithfulness, even when you think those little kids are not paying attention, oh, they are. And what you do in the early years, it will echo in the later years. So marriage and family, church family, are you supporting and serving your church in love and in unity? Are you a part of the body of Christ? Here's another sphere. I can't worry about every other church in the community or every other church in the state or the Southern Baptist Convention or in the, in the country or in the world. But you know where I can serve and where I can support? I can do that here. These are the people. You are the people I'm to love, that I'm to care for, that I'm to forgive, that I'm to forbear with, that I'm to walk with, rejoice with, so on. Fourth, work, school, community. Are you loving others and sharing the gospel? Or are you just simply letting class periods roll by and forgetting that God has put you where he has put you for his kingdom as a believer? And then lastly, world and missions. Are you sharing the gospel? Are you expanding Christ's kingdom? And you may say, well, man, that's a, that's a pretty big task. But you know what? It just might be for praying for the gospel in other nations. You may be in a place right now where there's not much you can do besides pray and besides teach your kids or teach others. But the point is, is that if we look at these five things, that gives me an area of focus. I could spend time going through each of these and give you specific ways that I want to be faithful in each of these areas. Would you not agree? So I want to make this as practical as I can. I want you to look at these areas. If, you, if, if you're just writing them down, write them down and go back to them later and then pray and think intentionally, Father, how can I be faithful to your son and to his kingdom in these areas of my life? Because the, gen, the master's generous. And if you have all five of these things, and actually all of you do, God's been awfully faithful to us, hasn't he? Isn't he been good to us? But then look at the second thing here in the entrusting of his wealth. You see the servant's responsible stewardship. Look at verse 16, 18. At least they're expected to be responsible. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents, he went at once, immediately, and he traded with them. He went to the bankers, he traded, and he made five talents more. The one with two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, do you see what's going on here? You see the steward's responsible stewardship. That is, at least the servants were supposed to be responsible. Two were diligent and one was negligent. Let's just consider the two that were diligent in their stewardship. They traded. That means they put their money to good use. They invested and they got a return. The servants were responsible and they were effective. And here's the cut caveat. Are you ready? Christian, are you listening? It's not about doing enough. It's about faithfulness. That's what it's about. It is not about perfection. It's about possibility. 
And when I say that, I, I feel, it almost sounds like a prosperity guy, and I don't want to sound like that, but I hope you know what I mean. Possibilities for God's kingdom. It's not about perfection. It's about possibilities. It is possible. In other words, here's what the text is. Here's what Jesus is teaching. It is actually possible to be diligent and responsible as a follower of Christ. But what I feel is, is that often we, we think, well, man, I, I, I'm, I, fall so, I fall short. Welcome to the club. We all do. This isn't about perfection. This is about faithfulness. Or, here's what Kevin DeYoung writes, and I love this. Ordinary Christians in ordinary churches can be faithful, fruitful, and pleasing to God. In short, Christianity doesn't have to be impossible. I love that. He wrote that in a book called Impossible Christianity. It ought to be required reading for every overwhelmed Christian. You, you know why I'm bringing attention to this? Because sometimes the Christian life seems impossible. Especially it depends on who you're listening to. I mean, sometimes, are, do you not ask these questions? Because I'm just going to be really transparent with you this morning. Sometimes I just, I, I, I wake up and I think, man, am I spiritually disciplined enough? Am I radical enough? Well, what if I'm just ordinary? What if I'm just average? What if I'm not manly enough? What if I'm not womanly enough? Not me, but, you know, you may be asking that question. <laughs> yeah, careful. Glad I caught that. Isn't it endless? Am I doctrinal enough? It's endless. And, and here's my answer. Just be imperfectly faithful. Just be imperfectly faithful. And let me encourage you. Faithfulness over time will always yield fruitfulness even when you may not see it until you get to heaven. Fruitfulness has nothing to do with the signs of a building or the signs of a budget or anything simply numerical. It's about commitment and constancy for the kingdom in the long haul of the Christian life. That's what it's about. And so it's okay to be imperfectly faithful. It's okay to be an ordinary Christian. And I think we need to recognize that. And what you see here are two men... One had five talents, so he might appear to be more extraordinary, and one had two, but both were faithful. And so, diligent in their stewardship, but then the one was negligent. And here's all I want to say about the one who was negligent in his stewardship. He went and he dug a hole in the ground. Think back, think back to the treasure that was hidden in the ground in the, in the parable of Matthew 13. People would hide things in the ground because it was considered a safe way to secure money. You couldn't gain anything on that, but you could at least protect it. Especially in times of war or threat of thieves. However, this man, this servant does it sinfully. He, he does it with no gratitude towards his master and no intention of pleasing his master. He just wants to play it safe. No loss, no gain. Don't be that guy. That's the point. And so the questions then that we are left with as we consider the master entrusting his glorious wealth to us is this. What have you received from God? Go back to what I shared with you a moment ago. What has God shared with you? What is at your disposal? What are the spheres of your life? And then, and then secondly, how are you using what the Lord has given to you for His kingdom and His glory? So, so, because He has shared that wealth with you. 
And that leads to the second point. He rewards his faithful servants. Look at, look at verse 19. In verse 19, you see that there's a delayed return. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The master delays his coming for a long time. But the delay should never circumvent the level of preparedness and faithfulness of the servants. He came. And that's the point. He settled accounts. He called the servants to give a report of their stewardship. It is a reminder to the church that the Lord will return and we will give an account to Him. We will give an account for our stewardship as believers. We will give an account as stewardship as His church. Have we been faithful in dispensing the gospel and discipling others and proclaiming Christ to the nations? So He will come and and He will return and we will give an account. Paul repeatedly writes this in New Testament letters. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We are not autonomous beings. Did you hear me? We are not autonomous beings. We are accountable beings. And even if you're here today and you are not saved, you are not a Christian. You don't have the assurance of salvation or you're living a life of rebellion against God. I want you to know that you are accountable to Him. And one day you will stand before Him and give an account for your soul. And for every believer here, we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we, we will give an account for the life that we have lived for our Lord. And for the believer, that's encouraging. And I'll show you in a second. Because of His grace, we can look forward to that. And you see that in verse 20. Because the delayed return doesn't mean He doesn't return. He does. And when He returns, look at verse 20. There's a humble report. He who had received the five talents came forward. Wow, look at that comes forward to the master, settling these accounts, bringing five talents more, so five to ten, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. Now, look at verse 22, the one with two. And also the one with two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two here. I have made two talents more. And so, notice the demeanor and the attitude of these two. Master, you delivered to me. Do you sense the gratitude? Do you sense the humility? You delivered to me five talents. There's gratitude and recognition that apart from his master's grace and kindness, these servants would have nothing. And you know why that's important to highlight? Because it keeps before us the truth that any good in us or from us, any faithfulness from our lives is a direct result of the saving work of Jesus Christ alone. Only because of Him do we have any hope of future reward. 1 Corinthians 1. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Ephesians 1.4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. With how many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing. Everything is because of Christ. But I do want you to see something. The servant says what? I have taken what you delivered to me. And here's what I've done with it. Now isn't that powerful? 
Does that not change everything for you? Believer, be encouraged by this. It means that you can come to the judgment seat and say, Lord, by your grace, I made it. (laughs) And here's what I did for you. It's not enough because I'm a debtor. It's not enough because you are immeasurably worthy of everything. But here's what I've done. No pride, no boast. He just gives a humble report. It means, Christian, that we can stand before the Lord and say, we fought our sin, we treasured our families, we raised our kids, we did our jobs, we loved our church, we shared the gospel. Did we do it perfectly? No. But are you being faithful in doing it? That's the encouragement. And I think that we need to read it that way because I think our tendency is to just constantly pound how unfaithful we feel. Right? And so, 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 so notice then, the humble report. I made five. I invested, and here's the result. The key for us, Christian, is to be investing. But I want you to notice verse 21 through 23. Notice the glorious response to the humble report. The glorious response is in verse 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In verse 23, he says the same thing with the two talents. What an evaluation. What an evaluation. There are three things in that evaluation. There are three things in that response. First, he commends each faithful servant. Now, I'm going to drill down on this like I did a minute ago. He doesn't say, that's not enough. And that's grace. That's grace. You know what? In fact, I think that the Lord is nicer than we can be. He is. He doesn't say, that's not enough. He doesn't say, you could have done so much more. He says, That'll do. Wow. Well done. Good and faithful. He's pleased. Do you see it? He's pleased. And again, may I go, may I make this observation as well? That our Lord is pleased with ordinary, messy, imperfect Christian discipleship and progress. And the reason I say that, because that's my life. Right? There are some days I feel like, man, I need a Father of the Year award. And then there's other days my kids should simply divorce me as their dad. I'm sorry, I'm bad illustration, but you didn't get my point. The point is, is that, that the Lord is pleased with ordinary, messy, and any Christian who is honest will say, my discipleship it's often messy, sometimes slow, and often feels like it's not even happening at all. And yet, when we stand before our Lord, 
If we have been faithful to do our best with what He's given, He will say, He will commend His faithful servants. Get it out of your head that this is what He'll say to only those who who are perceived as super-Christians. The megachurch pastors, or your favorite conference speaker, or heroes of the faith who have gone before us. I'm not trying to take away any from, from those things, but what I am saying is this, is that forget all of them for a minute. This is what will be said to ordinary Christians who lived ordinary lives and sought to please the Christ who saved them by His grace. They didn't make headlines. They won't be written about or recognized on any kind of earthly platform. There were seasons they slacked. There were moments they wanted to quit. There were struggles with sin that no, no one maybe even noticed. There were times they even questioned their own salvation. But they made it in the end because they endured until the end and God kept them to the end. That's the kind of servants Christ is talking about. I'm sure that these servants were weak at times. Noticeably weak. But they pressed on by the power of the Spirit and for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the reason I share it with you from that angle is because I think that's really, truly what Christian discipleship looks like. He commends each faithful servant. Secondly, he promotes each faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. Listen to that. You've been faithful over a little. Spurgeon said, do you know that all yesterday was made up of littles? And the things of today are all little. And what you do tomorrow will be little things. Be faithful in the little things. Because they eternally matter. The little things. That class, that study, that work conversation, those family devotions. Just getting through the average day as a Christian. Be faithful in the little things. Those faithful now will be promoted then. And I don't want to speculate about what Jesus is saying outside of saying that we should view the little things of life through the lens of eternity. And that will give you perspective when you're trying to get that teenager to listen. When you throw up your arms and think, man, I have just completely failed. No, just be faithful in the little things and view them through the lens of eternity. He promotes each faithful servant. And one day he will promote every believer and set us in the new kingdom over other things to manage for his glory. But the third thing is he welcomes each faithful servant. Notice what he says at the end of, the, of each of these statements. He says, enter into the joy of your master. He invites him to enter the joy of the master. The master receives the faithful servant into his presence and the pleasures of eternal glory. Christian, when we meet Christ, we should be hopeful that we will, that he will be pleased with us and that he will be joyful over this, over us. And could there be no greater glory than that? That he should welcome us? That he should be pleased with us? And yet that is the assurance of this passage. 
Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so that leads to a couple of questions. One, on what basis will you enter into heaven? Do you think that you're going to enter into heaven because of your good works? Or because of the finished work of Jesus Christ? And Christian, when you finally stand before the Lord, will you be found imperfectly faithful? When you stand before the Lord. I believe that you can take great encouragement in that. Again, if you get out of your mind the overwhelming expectation of perfection. And you get over the fact that, you know what? None of us are perfect. Then you can live to say, I want to be found imperfectly faithful. When I stand before the Lord and I long for the day to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because that's an accolade to me, but because that is all the praise to his glorious grace in my life. And so he rewards the faithful servant. And that's what you see here. And and I'll just say this as an addendum. that Because again, I'm, I'm kind of on this mode here this morning of I think some things just need to be said. I am richly encouraged by the faithfulness of this church. When, when my kids came back from the mission trip this summer, the, the, the one thing that, this was in a text message, I am so, this was a text message, I am so grateful to be a part of this church. To see people serving Christ and doing things for God's kingdom. I, I mean, I'm not quoting that verbatim, but what I'm saying is, is that there was just this general observation of gratitude towards faithfulness. Does that mean that we do enough? There's more to be done. Does that mean that we're perfect? No, it doesn't mean we're perfect. But praise God, there's faithfulness. And the reason I say that, because I think our tendency is always to look at the things that aren't being done instead of recognizing the good things that are being done for the kingdom of God. There is much to be grateful here at this church. But the third thing that I want you to see is he condemns the wicked servant. Verse 24. The wicked servant is in a different category. The wicked servant is condemned. And the first thing you see is he presumed wrongly. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Notice his presumption is wrong. Two things he thought about his master. He thought his master to be unkind and unreasonable. Unkind and unreasonable. You would think that would have encouraged him to work hard and the master tells him this. But since he concluded that it must be impossible to please this master, he would just do nothing. And so, as such, we must think rightly about God. We have a God who is good, who is caring, who is gracious, who is sovereign, yes. But who is also merciful and loving. And all that he demands of us, he has provided for us in Christ so that anything we do is simply out of the measure of gratitude towards his faithfulness. Don't presume wrongly about God. For him to expect us to use all that we have for his glory is reasonable. After all, he's the one who owns it all. And for us as believers, now to the unbeliever that might be, well, I don't, I don't like that. 
Well, that's because the unbeliever wants to live for himself. But for the believer, we would say, wait, that's reasonable because of all that he's done. And so notice that he presumed wrongly, and look what wrong belief leads to. He produced nothing. Look at verse 25, the latter part of it. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. Notice there's no love for his master, no affection, no desire to please his master. Now compare that to the two. What did the two do? The two loved their master. The two seized every opportunity. The two invested. The two were faithful out of gratitude for what was given to them. And the two were fruitful. But this one, no gratitude, no desire to please, and no bearing of any fruit whatsoever. The evidence is clear. This servant, the unfaithful servant, is a professing Christian who does not possess true salvation. I firmly believe that. I believe that because Jesus is doing comparisons in each of these parables. There are two categories. There were the ready bridesmaids and the unready bridesmaids. There are the, there, there are two types of servant. The wicked servant and then the faithful servant. And then when you get to next week, there'll be the sheep and the goats. There are believers and there are unbelievers. And that's what Jesus is demonstrating here. The unbelieving servant The one who, and again, this is a parable, so for us to say, well, they're all saved, no. The one simply represents those who did not possess salvation, and his life demonstrates it. A believer has affection for the Lord, seeks to live a life pleasing to him, and though imperfectly, will bear evidence in his life of good fruit. And because this this wicked servant produced nothing, he paid severely. Notice in verse 26, he is condemned. Three quick things. His master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. He calls them wicked and lazy. The judgment for the unbeliever will be one of condemnation. The evidence is in the life lived. No fruit. You were wicked. You were lazy. You didn't respond. And then he corrects the wicked servant. You ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was, uh, what was my own with interest. So take, he tells his, his other servants, take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away. In other words, what the master says, if presumptions were true, then he should have invested and honored the master's expectations. But his belief was wrong. So the talent is taken away from him and given to the one with ten talents. What does this illustrate? That those who are faithful and fruitful will have an abundant reward. And the one who has nothing, the one who will save his life, will lose it in the end. That's the teaching here. And notice the last reason I also know that this man's an unbeliever. Verse 30. He casts out the wicked. He condemns the wicked, he corrects the wicked, and then he casts out the wicked. The worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is hell. That's what he's describing there. Every other time those words are used on reference to eternal hell. Hear me. The end for the wicked is one of wrath and judgment. 
He is described as worthless. What that means is he believed wrongly and he lived wastefully. And he lost his soul in the end. If you scoff at God's provision of salvation, if you do not repent of your sin, if you do not put your faith in Christ and commit yourself to Him and enslave yourself in one sense by submitting to His Lordship, in the end, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what the text is teaching. There will be, this is what John MacArthur writes, saving faith will always result in serving faith. And if there is no serving faith, there cannot possibly be any true saving faith. Here's what J.C. Ryle writes, and it's worth quoting. By God's grace, never to be content with a profession of Christianity without practice. Let us not only talk about the gospel, but act. Let us not only feel the importance of the gospel, but do something. We are not told that the unprofitable servant was a murderer, a thief, or even a waster of his Lord's money. But he did nothing. And this was his ruin. Let us beware of a do-nothing Christianity. Such Christianity does not come from the Spirit of God. So are you a professing believer? Or are you a practicing believer living in light of eternity? You see, here's the point. The point is today, if you're here and you're a believer, you're sitting here, you're thinking, you know what, I do have a soul. I do have a family. I do have a job. I have a school. I have people around me here. And, and you are stirred because you're a Christian. You want to please the Lord. But if you don't want to please the Lord, if you don't desire to serve the Lord, if you don't love Him who is the Master, then you don't know Him. And that's clearly what happens here. This man did not really know the Master at all. Do you? And so in conclusion, not only should we, should we be watching for Christ's return, we should be working until he returns. And believer, you should be encouraged today to keep working. Like Jonathan Edwards, the great 17th century preacher, American pastor, said this. He wrote, resolve never to do anything I would be afraid to do in the hour of Jesus' return. And could I add to that, and may I be found always doing something that would please my master when he returns. Would you resolve that today? Have you been forgiven of your sin and given the gift of salvation? When you stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, what will happen to you? What will you hear him say? Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or will you hear him say, depart from me, I never knew you. And Christian, how can you continue in faithfulness as you joyfully wait for Christ's return. As the old hymn says, let us labor for the master from the dawn till setting sun. Let us talk of all his wondrous love and care. Then when all of life is over and our work on earth is done and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. Let's stand. Father, this is your holy and inspired word. May all of our hearts be stirred to think about our Lord and Savior and all that he has given to us. May we labor and work until he comes. And may we as Christians look for that day and long for that day that he says, well done, 
good and faithful servants enter into the joy of your master. It will not because of, it will not be because of any good we have done, but only because of his saving grace. So may we desire to please him. And if there's one here today who's never been saved, may today they bow before Jesus and submit to his lordship. And God, may we all be found faithful in whatever area of life it would be until he comes. Amen.